With a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George, welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. And coming up in about a half hour's time, we will be talking with Charlotte Peters, the manager of bylaw services, about the uh, recent Safe Streets bylaw that was passed in the city of Prince George. But to start today's program, we're going to go to Monday morning's front burner from CBC News as they talk about how things kind of got out of hand as far as the pandemic goes in Alberta. Good morning, everyone. This is a great day that we have all waited for for a long time. Today we are announcing Alberta's Open for Summer plan. It was a joyous day for Alberta Premier Jason Kenney as he laid out his three-stage plan to fully reopen the province, just in time for July 1st, Canada Day. Today, we are truly near the end of this thing. We're leaving the darkest days of the pandemic behind and stepping into the warm light of summer. In short, it means that finally getting back to normal, and I think it means the best Alberta summer ever. But last week, it became abundantly clear that the dark days of the pandemic, they're not gone yet. We are facing an emergency that requires immediate action to save lives and to prevent an ongoing crisis in our healthcare system. Last week, Kenny laid out the dire situation to Albertans. The virus is spreading even more rapidly than their model's highest projections, and the province may run out of staffed ICU beds in mere days. Alberta actually has more people with COVID in the ICUs in Ontario, even though Ontario has three times the population. Today, the path of Alberta's fourth wave. What took Jason Kenney from heralding the best Alberta summer ever to delivering a crisis in the province's hospitals by the fall? My colleague Carolyn Dunn in Calgary is here to walk us through it. Hey, Carolyn, thanks very much for making the time to speak with us today. Hi, Jamie. I wish I was here to report some more positive news, but here we are. I know. I know. Me too. Um, so so let's talk about how, how we got here. Uh, we just heard how back in May, Premier Jason Kenney was sounding really optimistic, okay? really hopeful about his three-stage plan to reopen Alberta. And by July 1st, stage three had arrived. And when stage three came, what were Albertans allowed to do at that point? Like, what were the rules slash COVID-19 restrictions in, in stage three? Well, not many rules at all. It was basically a return to normal. Almost all of the restrictions had been dropped. Indoor social gatherings were allowed. Restrictions on outdoor gatherings were completely lifted. Capacity limits for business and places of worship also gone. Laws mandating masks were rescinded, except for in the healthcare settings uh, and on public transit. You still had to wear a mask. But other than that, it was basically returned to pre pandemic normal. How did you react to that at the time uh, as a journalist, that announcement? Well, when I heard Jason Kenney say... Uh, Our intention, this is open for good, not just open for summer. I thought that is so bold, such a bold thing to say at a photo op that I better save this tape because it occurred to me immediately that could come back to haunt him. And Mm -hmm. sure enough, it was a good thing I saved that tape and that it was very handy for me because I've used it a few times over the last few days. 
Oh, I bet. I bet. When he said open for good, what was the state at that time of, of COVID-19 and, and COVID-19 immunization uh, that, that made Kenny and his team feel like the province was actually ready to open and open for good? Well, they set a threshold to reach stage three when 70% of eligible Albertans, that's people over 12 years old, when they had received at least one dose of vaccine, not even double vax. That was the bar, and that's when it happened. This is not a guess. This is this plan is based on uh, the expert analysis of the chief medical officer, our public health team, looking at global experience. You know, I remember thinking at the time, wow, things things really look like they're going fully back to normal over there. I mean, for comparison, here in Ontario on July 1st, we, we still didn't have indoor dining. Our mask mandate was still in effect and still now is in effect. And and meanwhile, you know, I remember you guys had the Calgary Stampede starting on July 9th. And so how, how were people feeling about this opening up? Did, did they feel good about it or... As far as the medical experts go, there was not a complete unanimity, but there was a, a majority of people who were saying reopening is just too risky, saying that, mm-hmm. you know, Alberta's reopening plan was drafted before the Delta variant was on scene and that all of the decisions that they were making failed to account for the potential impact of this highly contagious strain. And right. and in hindsight, they were right. The, the people who were wary or who were raising alarm bells, you know, how were they treated, per- particularly by Premier Kenny, Kenny and his inner circle? Well, um, probably not very well. Uh, issues manager Matt Wolf tweeted, the pandemic is ending, accept it. And, you know, they were really dismissing the criticism as if it was fear mongering. They were also accusing uh, medical health experts and media um, of wanting the pandemic to continue. At this stage of this, I, I don't think it's responsible constantly to be spreading fear. We need to embrace the science of the protective effect of vaccines. So uh, the, the the data is in. The global experience is clear. Uh, this is the most cautious, one of the most cautious plans in the world. I think this brings us now to, to like the end of July, uh, beginning of August. And at the end of July, as it starts to become possible to observe what the effect of the reopening is, just talk to me about what started to happen with COVID-19 case counts in Alberta. Well, as soon as the data catches up to the reality, you know, the testing is always delayed. Everything is delayed in COVID. But cases are starting to creep up. But we know with any of the COVID variants, they grow exponentially. And Delta is like coronavirus on crack. It's extremely transmissible. The experts are warning that the doubling rates uh, just keep getting shorter. So the caseload is doubling in a shorter amount of time. And they were predicting exactly what we're seeing today. Some doctors are blaming the stampede, while others say it is the ripple effect of lifting restrictions. Because we've had almost a threefold increase in our 
in our cases, and we know that these are going to continue to increase for the next 10 days at an exponential rate. I know I remember July July 30th, you know, it's, it's announced that at least 113 people were confirmed to have caught COVID-19 at the Calgary Stampede. Uh, Dr. Dina Hinshaw, Alberta's chief medical officer, she came out and she acknowledged the rise in, in cases was creating, quote, anxiety in some people. But she added that while COVID-19 cases may rise in the coming weeks and months, a surge of hospitalizations and other severe outcomes is much less likely thanks to vaccines. Yeah, I guess with the benefit of hindsight, again, um, what she wasn't seeing was the so-called pandemic of the unvaccinated. Mm-hmm. And uh, sure, there were 70 percent of eligible Albertans that had one vaccine, but that just wasn't enough. And there were large pockets of unvaccinated people throughout the province. Uh, and they were concentrated too, right? I mean, they there are actual communities where it's as low as, you know, in the 40s. And so the number of unvaccinated people or people who have only gotten one vaccine are the people who caught COVID and their cases are literally collapsing the healthcare system right now. She was counting on vaccinations that just weren't being taken in the percentages necessary to truly mitigate uh, the spread and severity of this virus. I want to talk to you about something else that happened at the end of July, and that was the announcement of an even further lifting of restrictions to come, right? And so tell me about that announcement. Sorry, after the past 17 months of restrictions, I know this will likely feel like a dramatic shift for many. We have grown accustomed to protective measures, so some anxiety is only natural. Well, it was a big one, and it was a shocking one, actually, to many people. Um, it was basically moving to end contact tracing and isolation requirements. So phase one at the end of July... As of tomorrow, quarantine will no longer be universally legally required for close contacts of confirmed cases. Contact tracers would no longer be notifying close contacts of anyone who had been exposed to COVID-19. And asymptomatic testing of contacts who may have been exposed was no longer being recommended. Then phase two of that is by mid-August, um, isolation, if you have a positive test, was no longer going to be required. Right. And mask mandates fully lifted. So basically, you you test positive for COVID, oh well, go to work, go shopping, if as long as you're feeling okay. Yeah, I, I remember reading that headline and, and feeling like I needed to double check it uh, when when it came through. It was it was such a, a shocking announcement. I, I remember um, there was some really striking comments too made by doctors who, who, who basically said that there was nowhere else in the entire world except now in Alberta where you don't have to isolate after testing Quarantine. positive. Within the medical community, there is plenty of concern. There is a general feeling of shock amongst the colleagues I work with in the hospital that we're doing the absolute wrong thing. I don't want to take this on. I don't want to take on this government. And this was such a big reaction that Dr. Dina Hinshaw, I remember she actually apologizes for causing confusion, fear, or anger in communicating her plan, but she still stood by this plan, right, Carolyn? And, and at least 
At least at that point she did. And so what was the justification offered for this move by Hinshaw and, and by Premier Kenny? Well, I think they were still thinking that even if COVID was spreading around, there'd be so many people who were vaccinated and not getting seriously ill Mm -hmm. from it that it almost wouldn't matter. It would be like a regular kind of flu season, right? And the significant uh, investment in a widespread contact tracing is not something we can live with for years to come. If we don't help people make this shift now, um, but the question is, when when would we make this shift? When would it be more appropriate? But they were also talking about moving on from COVID as the only public health priority to free up resources and to be able to turn attention back to other public health issues like the flu, things like syphilis. And there's there's a million other, you know, smaller public health uh, issues that probably are falling down on the priority list. Uh, and they really wanted to turn their attention back to that. Uh, and again, I think there's no perfect answer. There never has been in this pandemic. But we do need to think about COVID as one risk among many and not as the dominant risk that everything needs to focus on. Dr. Hinshaw has has at times been, been celebrated for being the voice of reason on, on COVID in Alberta. But Kenny said, uh, we accepted without modification uh, the proposal that came forward from the chief medical officer of health, uh, which is based on science and data. So what do we know about how her recommendations compared to to the government's approach, to the UCP's approach? Well, technically, we know nothing for sure. Unlike Ontario, for example, that has a science table that makes a list of recommendations among the group of them, and then the government accepts those or doesn't accept them, um, the Chief Medical Officer of Health in Alberta makes recommendations to Cabinet, and that is not public. So purely from a public transparency point of view, it is a failing of the system that has been sort of... The light shone on it uh, mm-hmm. during COVID. But at this point, you know, we have no choice but to just accept what's being said because there's literally no way, barring cabinet leaks, to show anything otherwise. We have to, you know, believe that Kenny says that he took that plan, went with it exactly as she recommended, because how do you prove otherwise? Okay. And so so by mid-August, the province does back off their controversial stance, which allows people with, with COVID-19 to not uh, isolate. And so why do they do that? Why do they back off of, of that decision? Well, I guess the numbers don't lie and the numbers are public. The rates of hospitalizations from COVID-19 uh, were significantly greater than what their own internal modeling had suggested. Our initial modeling showed that at this time we would expect to have about 90 total cases in hospital. Compared to 146 cases in hospital today, this is an increase of 62% over our projections. But Dina Hinshaw, Dr. Dina Hinshaw said there is no threat to hospital capacity at this time. Anyone who needs treatment will be able to get it, either for a COVID-related illness or for an unrelated issue. And that got again public health and data uh, experts in a bit of a in a bit of a tizzy. COVID nineteen 
COVID cases and hospitalizations are again spiking in Alberta, but so far, no move to bring back restrictions. The Premier and his Chief Medical Officer of Health haven't spoken publicly in weeks. The Premier's Where is Premier Kenny during this time as, as cases continue to go up? Um, so that's a good question. Uh, we know that he was on vacation for a couple or a few weeks, which is, you know, fair enough. Uh, but his health minister and chief medical officer of health and virtually anyone who had any role in uh, the pandemic was completely or virtually completely absent during this time. Why do you think they were so absent during this time? Well, you can only speculate. I mean, the premier has said, look, I was on vacation and I'm a person with a heavy work schedule, so I need to be able to uh, take a, a decent break sometimes. And I think that that is, is absolutely fair enough. It's important that a person in my position doesn't burn out, has a chance to recharge my batteries. I can tell you I was in, char- in touch with um, my office, with senior ministers. But... The plan wasn't going the way that they had hoped. And so people are sort of at least speculating about why he might have stayed away. One, he was going to have to answer to this plan that just wasn't working. Also, that he was going to have to do this in the middle of a federal election. Uh It went so differently than how he hoped it was going to go. And, you know, there were real political implications for how that might affect a conservative campaign of uh, Aaron O'Toole. Yeah. Pro- probably just worth mentioning here, while all this was happening in, in August, you, you could still buy hats from the UCP's website that, that say, Best Summer Ever Alberta 2021. Um, yeah. Yeah. That is the first segment from Monday morning's front burner from CBC News. We'll have segment number two in a moment here on 93.1 CFIS FM. You're listening to After Nine. Give your morning a boost with some sounds from above with Songs in the Chapel Sunday mornings at 9 on 93.1 CFIS FM. Join me, Corey Walker, as I fill the airwaves with the sounds of heavenly gospel music. I feature a mixture of traditional country, bluegrass, southern, and black gospel, and even a little bit of worship and contemporary Christian music. An inspiring message from the Salvation Army's Heartbeat series is featured in every show. As Songs in the Chapel Sunday mornings at 9, only here on 93.1 CFIS FM. Identify and develop your organization's internal capacity by taking Vantage Point's Life Cycle Self-Assessments Workshop. In this half-day program, you'll learn to diagnose your organization's life cycle stage, pinpoint your exact growing pains, and plan next steps for capacity development. Registration and full details are available through the calendar link under training at thevantagepoint.ca. Apply the organizational life cycle model to your organization with the Life Cycle Self-Assessment Workshop, Tuesday, October 5th from 9 to 1 through the vantage point.ca. The YMCA of Northern BC is fundraising for a Tovertafel, a piece of healthcare technology made to improve the lives of adults with dementia through purposeful play. $15,000 is needed to bring this touch of magic to the residents of Simon Fraser Lodge. To help out, donate at nbc.ymca.ca, in person at the Prince George Family Y on Massey Drive, or by calling the Family Y at 250-562-9341. More information is available online at nbc.ymca.ca. 
Forecast for Environment Canada. Cloudy today with a high of 13. Mainly cloudy tonight with a 30% chance of showers in northern sections, a low of 6. For Friday, mainly cloudy, a 30% chance of showers and the wind becoming southwest 20 in the afternoon, a high of 17. Keeping you up to date on current news and events in and around Prince George. This is After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. And here is the final segment from Monday morning's front burner from CBC News. So, so meanwhile, you know, as cases continue to skyrocket across the province by September 1st, now we're in September, there were 12,290 active cases and 465 people in hospital. And after not being seen for 23 days, Kenny does come back from vacation with, with a Facebook Live event on September 1st. And there, he again defended his government's approach to COVID-19 and placed much of the blame for the increasing case numbers on the a lagging vaccination rate in the province. Increasingly, it's become a disease of the unvaccinated. If it was, if we had, instead of 78% vaccine coverage, or let's say uh, 69% full coverage, if we had uh, 90% coverage, we would not have meaningful pressure on the healthcare system. But while Quebec and BC and Manitoba, Ontario had all said they're going ahead with some kind of vaccine passport to access some public spaces by this point, Kenny rejected that notion and and instead on September 3rd announced a different kind of vaccine incentive, a $100 preloaded debit card to anyone getting their first or second shot. I wish we didn't have to do this, but this is not a time for moral judgments. This is a time to get people vaccinated. We have done everything we can, left no stone unturned. And and do you have a sense of what impact that's had on vaccination rates in the province? Um, Well, first on the on people. It ticked them off. <laughs> People who had already been vaccinated, you know, right, there was right. a lot of a lot of criticism for rewarding people who who in their minds hadn't done the right thing. But it didn't cause a flood of vaccinations. It did cause an uptick. There were more appointments booked, but it was widely panned and not particularly successful or we wouldn't be where we are today. As Alberta's hospitals fill with COVID-19 patients, many surgeries are being put on hold, including 31-year-old Eric Mulders, scheduled to have a cancerous brain tumor removed this week, but no more. I was probably shaking for the an hour afterwards. And that brings us to where we are today. Um, Let's start with last week. We all wish we could simply turn the page and leave COVID in the past. But this disease is an invisible and ever-changing foe. And we have no choice but to face the grave threat of this fourth wave head on. Kenny comes out and announces he's declaring a a state of public health emergency and, and that there may not be any staffed ICU beds left in 10 days. It's a grave announcement. And it's one that contains an apology from the premier. And and can you tell me about that apology? Well, it was as close to remorse as we've seen from Jason Kenney about any of the pandemic handling. We believed that we could prudently move away from, from addressing COVID as a pandemic and towards an endemic. It is now clear that we were wrong. And for that, I apologize. 
However, in the same press conference, Kenny clarified that he wasn't actually apologizing for lifting public health measures in July. He thought that that was the right thing to do. What he was apologizing for was just saying that they're open for good. Okay. We actually saw uh, that uh, case counts and even the Delta variant uh, continued to, to uh, stabilize and even come down uh, through most of July. It's under a nif- different name, but uh, I know th- they also announced a, v- a vaccine passport program. So what this means is that anyone who has valid proof of immunization or has a negative result from a privately paid for COVID test can access some services, businesses or events without having to physically distance. And, and what does that look like now? Well, you know, just in the few days since that's happened, the demand for the COVID-19 vaccinations, uh, the bookings have tripled uh, in Alberta. Um, one thing to note, though, is that those people who are getting their first uh, vaccines now are still getting that $100 gift card. Hmm. As we've talked about throughout this conversation, the situation in Alberta is incredibly, incredibly dire right now. The, the state of emergency has been called. Nearly 78% of all COVID patients in, in Alberta's hospitals are unvaccinated or partly vaccinated. Alberta's death rate is triple. Every other province except Saskatchewan, the, the leaders of Alberta's largest health unions are calling on Kenny to ask Ottawa to bring in the military. And so I know that there's a lot of anger at Kenny in Alberta right now, both from those in his base who were told he'd end COVID measures and and feel betrayed, and those who feel Kenny acted far too late and is responsible for the fourth wave's growing death count. So it it kind of feels like a lose-lose scenario for him. So, Carolyn, what do you ultimately think kept Kenny on his pandemic-is-over track for so long? If you had to name just one thing, is it... Is it politics? Is it the province's culture? Is it is it because he believed this was the right course of action? Is it hubris? Ideology, if you want me to say one word. I really believe that Jason Kenney believes in the least amount of government intervention in any circumstance, including apparently a public health crisis. You know, he believes in personal responsibility over government mandates. That much is true. And this just hasn't worked out for him. The personal responsibility part of the equation just didn't follow. So the hubris part, I suppose, comes in when you see how long it has taken him and his government to change course, uh, even with this startling data upon them and admit that they made some mistakes. What does his political future look like, you think? Well, the knives are out for Kenny within his own party. There's no question about that. Um, There are MLAs, uh, the money people in the party. You know, he's not bringing in donations, half of what the NDP is. Uh, The NDP is doubling not just the money, but also the UCP and the polls. So you put any leader in that position and there's going to be questions about their leadership. The only obvious thing that is really kind of stopping this process of going after uh, Kenny's leadership 
quickly or even before now is that there's no heir apparent. You know, this was his party that he started. And there's no one obvious sort of sitting and waiting in the wings of this new party. So killing the king might just mean killing the party. Okay. Uh, Carolyn, thank you. Thank you so much for this. Always great to come on with you, Jamie. I'm Jamie Poisson. Thanks so much for listening to Front Burner. We'll talk to you tomorrow. On 93.1 CFIS FM, that is Monday morning's Front Burner from CBC News. You can also catch Front Burner on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Be listening for 11 o'clock tonight as we will carry this morning's Front Burner. And it's all about the mystery surrounding. Gabby Petito. When After Nine resumes, we'll be talking with Charlotte Peters, the manager of bylaw services at the city of Prince George. The second annual LEAP Conference for Women is set for October 26th, 27th, and 28th. This year's conference can be attended in person or virtually. The Leadership and Entrepreneur Accelerator Program is designed to help women develop their professional life with guest speakers, face-to-face networking, and exhibitor booths. For more information or to register, visit the Community Futures LEAP Conference webpage at cfdc.ca. The second annual LEAP Conference for Women, October 26th to 28th, virtually or in person. Theatre Northwest is presenting a series of stage readings over the next few months, all of them at Theatre Northwest on North Chaco Road. On Friday, Solomon Goodsward is presenting his own play, Smoke Sturgeon. The show starts at 7. Tickets for Smoke Sturgeon, written and presented by Solomon Goodsward, are available at tickets.theaternorthwest.com. Smoke Sturgeon, 7 o'clock Friday at Theatre Northwest in the Park Hill Centre. If you attended a federal Indian day school, now is your time to make your claim. If you experience harm at your school, you may be eligible to receive a check for compensation. Remember, you need to make your claim before July 13, 2022. See if your school is on the list and get free legal help. Start at IndianDaySchools.com or call 1-844-539-3815. Claim What's yours? As part of its Pride series, Theatre Northwest presents a stage reading of Natalie Meisner's play Speed Dating for Sperm Donors on October 29th. Julian Legere will produce the play about a lesbian couple who want a baby or two. Audience members are warned the play includes some mature language, sexual content, and references to homophobic violence. Speed Dating for Sperm Donors, part of the Pride series, October 29th at Theatre Northwest in the Park Hill Centre. Tickets are available at tickets.theaternorthwest.com. It's After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. And as promised, we have Charlotte Peters in studio. Uh, Charlotte is the manager of bylaw services at the city of Prince George. Good morning, Charlotte. Good morning. Thanks for having me. How are you today? I'm well. I'm, this is my first time uh, doing anything like this, so uh, it's exciting and a little bit nerve-wracking at the same time. First time on the radio. Yes. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your background first off. Uh, you're not from Prince George. Where, where do you hail from originally? 
originally I'm from uh, from the East Coast. Oh, okay. But uh, 25 years ago, or 26 years ago, I guess now, I started a career with the RCMP. Mm-hmm. So I ventured west and spent uh, a few years in Alberta, a few years in Saskatchewan, and then I was uh, lured to British Columbia. My last posting was here in Prince George, and I enjoyed it. I think we have a, a great city here, so I chose to stay when the mm-hmm. oppor- opportunity with the city presented itself. So Okay. Uh, RCMP uh, officer... A lot of travel involved when you're when you take on that career, right? Yeah, I think I moved in 25 years. I think I moved nine times. Wow! So started off in Alberta, spent ten and a half years there. Uh, went to Saskatchewan. I was there for just about four years. Had an opportunity to to go back and teach actually at the oh, training okay. academy. Yeah. And then I came to British Columbia. I spent uh, six years in the Lower Mainland. Uh, did some some major crime and some homicide work down in Surrey. Right. And uh, then I was uh, came north and uh, started off in uh, in Seike, uh north of Mackenzie. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, did a short stint in Burns Lake and then came to Prince George where I finished it off. Wow, uh, quite a difference between the Lower Mainland and the North. Huge difference. Um, we. It's hard to explain. Obviously, big urban area, mm-hmm. policing a different style. Right. Um, although Prince George is a bigger city, yeah. I think we try and give more small-town service. Right. Um, yeah, and I think I've tried to carry a little bit of that over into bylaws. Right. Uh, w- uh, compare Lower Mainland to Prince George as far as uh, crime and how the RCMP would approach that. Um, I think... Uh, like you say, more small town service, so well, you get to know the individuals a little more. Is that sort of the, the exactly. case? Exactly. I mean, there's obviously very uh, bigger numbers of, of you know criminal people in Activity. the lower mainland. Yeah. Um, we get sort of the the overflow coming up here. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a. I, I, I mean, it's hard to speak for policing now. I've been out of it for a year, but I can tell you, there's you know a, a strong group of regulars in Prince George that are are dealt with all the time. Uh, whereas right. in the Lower Mainland, much more transient, much larger uh, population of people who are involved in crime. Um, they have a lot more officers down there as well, a lot more uh, specialized sections. Up here, basically, we're dealing with uh, a detachment. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's busy for them, but, I mean, they have six big detachments down in the lower mainland. Right. So, yeah. So a lot, yeah. a lot more, a lot more people fighting crime down there, but we're lucky because I think it's probably, you know, proportional. Okay. You, you mentioned, uh, transient. Uh, did, uh, four years as an officer in Prince George, did you see that, uh, there was a constant flow of people into Prince George from the surrounding areas? Is that, well, I think with Prince George, Accurate. we're sort of a hub city for the right. north. Um, the, the northern part of Prince George, or the, the I mean, for the RCMP, they refer to it as the northern district. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we cover seventy three percent of the of the of the province in in area. Um, we have a lot of areas where, um, like Seike, for example, the first community that I worked in when I yeah. was in the north, they don't have a lot of services. So when people require services, they come out to an area like Prince George. Um, and I think uh, a lot of people some will choose to stay. Yeah. Um, they'll say, hey, life is really good in Prince George. I can access X, I can access Y, and I can access Z. So why wouldn't I, uh, I want to stay around? Stick around, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so does that lead into the homeless uh, issue that we have been dealing with? 
I think, unfortunately, it has. Um, a lot of people attribute uh, sort of the start of our issues to the Williams Lake fires. Fire, yeah. I, I don't necessarily believe that that's the only thing. I think, you know, word of a good thing tends to spread. Yeah. Um, so, so like I say, I think people realize um, the good the good services that we have here in Prince George, and I think that's a real drawing card uh, for people who unfortunately are experiencing mental health issues, addiction issues, um, and, and just you know straight up poverty. Okay, so uh, we've uh, segued into the uh, the homeless and. One of the reasons we brought you in, this is uh, part three of uh, a series we've done so far, uh, or we are doing, uh, on the homeless situation and the new Safe Street bylaw. So what we'll do is we'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more specifically about the bylaw and uh, what that is and and what we're going to be doing going forward. You're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. If you've ever wondered how railway tracks are maintained or what happens if there's an accident, Derailed, keeping the click-clack on the tracks, is waiting for you. Currently on display at the Railway and Forestry Museum, Derailed will immerse you in the experiences of auxiliary railway crews ready at a moment's notice to respond to a cleanup call. Derailed, keeping the click-clack on the tracks, is on through October 7th at the Railway and Forestry Museum on River Road next to Cottonwood Island Park. On now at Two Rivers Gallery, The Wilderness of Mirrors. This stunning exhibit explores a fictional narrative located around Monument 83, a lookout point on the Canada-U.S. border. Using video, sculpture, and drawing, Keith Langergraber forms the story of a fire spotter who, isolated at his post, starts to lose his grasp on reality. Open from 10 to 5 Monday through Saturday until 9 on Thursday and from noon to 5 Sunday, The Wilderness of Mirrors is on through October 3rd at Two Rivers Gallery, where creativity flows in the Canada Games Plaza. September 30th is National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. The City of Prince George will be observing this important occasion each year with staff entitled to federal and provincial statutory holidays receiving the day off. City Hall and Massage Place Stadium will be closed, as will the Aquatic Centre for annual regular maintenance. Other civic facilities such as CN Centre will be open for regular hours and garbage collection will take place as previously scheduled. The City's after-hours service will also be available. Forecast for Environment Canada, cloudy today with a high of 13. Mainly cloudy tonight with a 30% chance of showers in northern sections, a low of 6. For Friday, mainly cloudy, a 30% chance of showers and the wind becoming southwest 20 in the afternoon, a high of 17. Featuring the people who make things happen in Prince George, you're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. And we're speaking this morning with Charlotte Peters, the manager of bylaw services at the city of Prince George, about the new... Uh, Safe Streets Bylaw, in particular, it's uh, the third and final uh, part of our three-part series. And Charlotte, uh, let's sort of go through the process of of how this came about. You mentioned you're, you've only been with the city for one year, so this kind of would have been on your plate right from day one, then. Yeah, right from the get-go coming in, I knew that uh, the challenges of downtown were going to be, you know, sort of at the forefront of of some of the things we'd have to deal with. Right. Um, so yeah, so going forward, I uh, spent a lot of time uh, looking at uh, what was happening, um, taking sort of complaints from various individuals, people uh, sort of entrenched in the in the in the homeless um, situation, mm-hmm. uh, social agencies, downtown businesses, and people outside of the downtown who perhaps just wanted to enjoy it, um, sort of with their family. So right. lots of different perspectives and lots of thought uh, went into this. Um, 
It was obviously it was written by a, a lawyer who's a, a municipal right. prosecutor who the city uses. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how it started. We decided um, in in May, back in probably earlier than that, probably April, that we had to we had to do something that was going to be visible that right. would sort of show. Um, that yes, the city acknowledges what's going on, and we also recognize that yes, we have a population of individuals who are in the downtown who need a lot of a lot of help and a lot of assistance, and mm-hmm. and 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 we participate in that. Right. But we also have the rest of the city. Yeah. Who also, and, and so it becomes very precarious because you have to try and balance the needs of of everyone, right? Right, right. And and so that's what we we tried to do. We've received a lot of sort of criticism for the safe streets, but um, I, I think perhaps some of the criticism comes from a lack of understanding of of what the bylaw is all about. Okay. Um, because realistically, a lot of the things that are in the bylaw actually existed in other places okay. throughout the bylaws. Um, I'll give you an example in terms of uh, of um, the panhandling, say. Mm-hmm. Panhandling is actually entrenched in provincial legislation already, um, but provincial legislation can only be uh, handled by the police. Okay, yeah. Bylaw officers can't right. do that. Right, right. So, and the police in Prince George, we talked about it prior to the break, they're fairly busy. Yeah. So we wanted to take a little bit of, of work off their plate, mm-hmm. and that's something that we can deal with by way of this bylaw. Um, lots of people, uh, we have some, some elderly people in town who are nervous to go to bank machines right. because there could be people sleeping in the bank machine and perhaps asking for money. Yeah. And, and, and that's a situation that we just can't have. So, right, right. so this now gives us the ability to go and ask those people to move on and mm-hmm. stop asking for money. But if we didn't have that in place, we couldn't do it. We would have no authority right. to do it. Um, we look at our highways bylaw, and our highways bylaw already had in it that we couldn't obstruct sidewalks. So you look sometimes at the situation at Third and George, mm-hmm. where we have people who are, you know, getting ready to use the Northern Health safe injection site, and they're piling up their stuff and they're sitting on the sidewalk. Well, I mean, that's one of the main thoroughfares leading off to our courthouse. Mm-hmm. So we did have that authority in place that we could move people based on the, the highways bylaw. But what we wanted to do is we wanted to have one bylaw that everybody could see that was really succinct and would sort of cover everything as opposed to having to search here and there and everywhere to, yeah. to find the authorities that we can use to do that, if that makes any sense. No, no, that, that makes sense. Uh, when I read through the bylaw, uh, I, I did sort of think the old adage – that if you're a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Yeah. Uh, it kind of comes across that way, don't you think? Perhaps, but I think people need to look at how bylaws does business. Okay. Um, like I say, a lot of these um, authorities have been in place in other places. Yeah. But traditionally, we don't we don't go and write tickets. Right. It absolutely makes no sense. Yeah. To go and write a ticket to somebody who is Has suffering no money. <laughs> from mental health, addiction, poverty, and doesn't have the money yeah. to pay it. Yeah. That would be just compounding their issues. Yeah. So so what we do is we try and educate folks mm-hmm. on you know these are the rules of engagement. This is this is what you you can and can't do, and we we assist them. 
I mean, I think if you were to go out and talk to people on the street mm-hmm. outside of the, say, for example, the safe injection site, right. and talk about how their interactions go with bylaws, yeah. I think the majority of those comments that you received would be very positive. Right, right. Because we do try and help. Um, one of the things the city has just done is they've just hired an outreach worker who's going to actually be working with bylaws on a, on a daily basis. Oh, okay. Um, so we haven't lost sight of the fact that that people do need the leg up and the help and referrals and need to know where to go. Yeah. But we still have to try and keep the rest of the city safe. So we're mm-hmm. trying to trying to get that balance. So uh, speaking of hiring, has have the number of bylaw officers increased for uh, to be able to handle the new uh, Safe Streets bylaw? We or, have, but yeah. that but that happened before the Safe Streets bylaw came into play. It wasn't specifically for that. Oh, okay. Um, we have a lot of uh, we have a lot of downtown parkades, parking lots, mm-hmm. um, city assets in and around this neighborhood. So what we did is we put together a, a downtown team, okay. and we've had it for a couple of years. It was uh, we had four individuals. We doubled it, so we've increased the coverage of uh, bylaw services. So they now work from seven in the morning until eleven at night, um, mostly on foot, mm-hmm. and. What we're trying to do is we're trying to interact with uh, with the businesses downtown, with the people who are living on the streets downtown, and we're just trying to we're, we're trying to keep everybody safe and everybody yeah. engaged in, in in solving the problems. Yeah. So, and we find that being out there and being visible, it's helping. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the educational aspect. Uh, you mentioned uh, the people on the street. A lot of them, it, it's a case of uh, teaching them where they can go to get the services they need. What, what about just the average person, uh, the average resident in Prince George? Is there an, uh, an educational aspect to that as well? Or, you know, well, and I think the important thing to remember is the Safe Streets bylaw is not for. Well, I mean it. We, we use it predominantly in downtown, but people mm-hmm. need to remember that it's for the whole city. Right. So we're not targeting folks. Right. Um, the rules apply to everyone equally across the city. So, yes, I think there is an education piece for everyone. Um, I think what bylaws tries to do um, is not only educate the folks who are committing these offenses, mm-hmm. but by engaging with businesses and members of the public, we're also letting people know, hey, these folks are, are, are people. Yeah, yeah. And and yeah, these folks are are doing this because they have issue X, Y, and Z. So we're making people aware and trying to make people feel less fearful mm-hmm. of these situations. So so I guess from that perspective, this is a an educational tool for for everybody in the city of Prince George. Yeah, my my thought was uh, educating the general public in the fact that uh, calling by law services isn't you uh, being horrible to that person that's uh, breaking the bylaw. It's getting them uh, in touch with someone that can perhaps help them. That's exactly right, because in calling bylaw services and, and a, a address or bringing our attention to perhaps uh, somebody who's camping in a, in a place outside of downtown, we right. may not have known about that because we're not there on a regular basis. So you're exactly right. We do go and we approach those folks and, and we do try and help them. Yeah. Um, I know right now we're, we're working very closely with BC Housing. Uh, to try and get people registered and on the list to get housing when it becomes available. Right, right. Um, and that's one of the biggest issues that we have going through, going towards winter. Because yeah. the last thing anybody wants is to have people on the street, you know, in, in minus 40. 
Yeah. So, yeah. So, so we're all participating in that. I don't even want to be on the street at minus 40. Nor do I. I just stay right inside all the time. Uh, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about, uh, we, you mentioned uh, BC Housing. We'll talk a little bit about the uh, project uh, down on First Avenue when we return here on After 9. Engage Sport North wants to hear from you. Share your favorite way to be active along with a photo, and you could be featured on their social media page or next newsletter. Send your story and photo by email to admin at engagesportnorth.com or use the hashtag EngageSportNorth on Facebook and Instagram. Be sure to follow Engage Sport North on social media and check out their new website at engagesportnorth.com. Engage Sport North, dedicated to advancing sport participation and excellence in the North. Advocate Life's Celebrate Life Gala is set for Monday, November 1st. This year's live event will feature guest speaker Dr. Anthony Levitino. Tables and table sponsorships are going quick as it is shaping up to be one of their best galas yet. The Prince George venue will be announced as soon as it's confirmed. For full details or to sponsor a table, visit CelebrateLifeGala.ca. Advocate Life's Celebrate Life Gala, Monday, November 1st, live in Prince George. Presented by Ferris, the 23rd Annual Life Sciences BC Awards is Thursday, September 23rd. It's an opportunity to celebrate our province's many achievements, small wins, and big victories. A moment to recognize and honor those furthering life sciences research to benefit human and environmental health and well-being. Tickets are free, with registration available through lifesciencesbc.ca. The 23rd Annual Life Sciences BC Awards, Thursday, September 23rd from 2 to 4.30 via Zoom. Two Rivers Gallery is extending their hours. The gallery is now back to pre-pandemic hours, open from 10 to 9 on Thursdays and Sundays from noon to 5. You can also look forward to plenty of new classes, workshops, and events for all ages in the coming months ahead. Two Rivers Gallery, open from 10 to 5 Monday through Friday until 9 on Thursday and from noon to 5 on Sunday. Two Rivers Gallery, where creativity flows in the Canada Games Plaza. Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Into our final segment with Charlotte Peters, Manager of Bylaw Services at the City of Prince George. And we, uh, going into the break, we're talking about the uh, BC Housing. And, of course, there's the big project down on First Avenue. Uh, whereabouts, how soon? I, I see the building. The w- first big building is is up and they're just working on the outside and the inside now. How close before that actually opens, do you know? Well, you know, you're going to ask me questions about things I'm not completely um, <laughs> up on, but uh, hopefully I don't walk myself into a puddle. But I think uh, I think spring of 2022 is what they're looking at. Okay. Um, and and I, I think uh, there's a big northern health piece there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the city, we have a few strategic partners here in, in Prince George. Northern Health is a big one. BC Housing is a big one. Um, but yeah, I, I think, um, I think supportive housing in the spring of 2022 is the goal for that project. Yeah. And it, and it really is a team effort. You mentioned Northern Health. You mentioned BC Housing. You mentioned a list of people that it's going to be a bit of a waiting list, isn't it? Well, I'm not exactly sure what the numbers are in terms of uh, of availability Available there. Available spots, yeah. Yeah, um, I want to say it's like 
between somewhere between 50 and 100, but I imagine there will be a, a waiting list. Yeah. But I can tell you that even right now, BC Housing is is uh, really working hard to um, to find to look for some other creative ways to, mm-hmm. to get people you know under a roof, right. um, whether that be a, a shelter or an apartment or other other you know. We've spent a lot of time this summer. Um, working with with these groups to try and find the reasons why people are on the streets right um what are the barriers and how can we overcome those barriers right um we've had some very valuable meetings uh at the community safety hub over the course of the summer meeting with all the agencies around the table Mm -hmm. to to share that information and and think of ways that we can overcome those barriers so and that's the information that we have bc housing working with now right now when you say barriers uh, what exactly does that – what are the barriers that you run into a lot? Uh, we have a lot of uh, folks on the street who are perhaps in, in a couple situation. Okay. And maybe a shelter isn't appropriate for them. Um, perhaps they have a pet. Uh, that that can't take that can't go into a shelter. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps they're involved in active addiction, and some of these shelters have have rules right. um, in relation to that. And and I think we also need to look um, uh, in residential schools. Uh, trauma over gen- multi generational mm-hmm. trauma. A lot of people are are reminded of of people who have gone before them and and they think of a shelter similar sort of you know the beds are all lined up right and and maybe they just can't bring themselves to go in so there's all kinds of reasons why people don't want to go in and i think we we need to to find ways to address those and overcome those right is that the biggest obstacle that you see out there is trying to fit the individuals into situations that they're going to be comfortable with and perhaps be able to excel or or move on with I think life? so I think I, yeah. I, I think we we have to be cognizant that there are those barriers we have to meet people where they're at and we have to we have to listen and I think we've done a pretty good job of that so far um, but it, it has to continue okay so uh, when per- someone reads the uh, safe street bylaw that really is sort of the um, the end uh, that that's sort of there kind of as the last ditch you know, we've tried everything else, but this is what we need to follow through with. And with the bylaw, we do try everything. I mean, people are very, very concerned about the fining aspect. Yeah. The fining aspect is the last thing that, that we want to do. Yeah. Um, we we try every avenue to get people into a more positive place and get them away from the behavior that perhaps is contravening the bylaw. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do that through partnership and, 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 and a lot of work in the background that people don't necessarily see. Right. So I guess it's a part of that, uh, say, a conversation a bylaw officer would have would be, uh, well, you're contravening, the, contravening this bylaw. Let's see how we can get you into a situation where that's not the case. Exactly right. Right. Okay. Uh, you you mentioned off air, uh, actually probably even on air, a lot of criticism about the bylaw. What what are the biggest things that you hear? I think when people see any piece of legislation that has a a perceived punitive consequence. Mm-hmm. They don't like it. Right. Um, and one of the things when you create a bylaw, you have to associate some sort of consequence to those things. And in this case, it is a fine. Right. Um, but really, the way bylaws are, are structured and, and the way they're meant to be is as an educational tool and 
we tr- voluntary compliance is the goal right. in any bylaw situation. Yeah. So that's why we will go through all these processes and and try everything we can think of to get that voluntary compliance. Yeah. Um, but if it gets to a point where you know there is somebody who just will not listen, then it does get to that finding point. Right. But I don't anticipate with the way we're working in the downtown with our partners that we will get there. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I've uh, been told about bylaw services is that it's very much a complaints-driven department. It is complaints-driven, yes. Is that the same situation for the for the downtown homeless uh, issue, or is there maybe a more proactive approach there is a more proactive approach in that we are doing the foot patrols right and so the foot the guys who are walking and gals who are walking around um with the downtown team if they see somebody who's doing something that's completely out of order and is going to cause a problem for a business or for other individuals then they'll try and remedy that situation without a complaint ahead of time exactly right Okay, uh, we just have a minute and a half or so to go. Any final words or, or uh, I guess, where can the listener go if they want more information or if they want to, you know, find out more about the issue? Um, they can certainly call bylaw yeah. services. Um, we field lots of calls every day. Um, we field lots of emails every day. Um, I try and answer as many as I can. Um, I've got uh, a, a tremendous staff who are, you know, they're they're always fielding calls and trying to educate folks right from the get-go. Yeah. So I would encourage people, um, if they do have questions, um, yeah, simply pick up the phone or or get behind your keyboard and uh, and and yeah, talk to us. Excellent. Uh, Charlotte Peters, manager of bylaw services at the City of Prince George. Thanks for coming in this morning. Thanks for having me. So that'll wrap it for today's edition. Tomorrow, of course, is Friday, which means we will have the Friday morning front burner followed by the panel here on After 9. After 9 is a daily presentation of CFIS-FM. After 9 is produced by Alan Wishart, Reg Fair, and Nathan Gita. Additional contributors include CBC News and the National Campus and Community Radio Association. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at cfisfm.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email cfisfm at yahoo.ca. Owned and operated by the Prince George Community Radio Society, you're listening to cfis FM Prince George.